morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see everybody who's uh, able to worship with the saints this morning. Um, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. Um, we're going to continue looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha, and we are in uh, a section that begins to um, relate Elisha to Elijah's ministry, but also distinctly set it apart. Uh, Elisha oftentimes did things from this point forward that are very intimate in their nature. Um, Elisha performed also many more miracles. I've, I've heard theoretically that the recorded miracles of Elisha are exactly double the recorded miracles of Elijah. Um, and you remember Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. But just some things um, with this, this lesson. Um, I always want to just kind of bring us into the time frame again when we're looking at these, these events. Um, just remember that this isn't too far separated from the time of Solomon, you know, just about 60 years from the time of Solomon. So there would have still been people alive who may have actually seen Solomon and experienced what the kingdom was like at that time. And the kingdom of Israel is separated. So after Solomon's reign, because of his sin and his idolatry, uh, God, in an effort for controlling the damage of Solomon's sin, separated the northern tribes of Israel from Judah in the south. Uh, the northern tribes of Israel had kings who each of them were evil in their own ways and to varying degrees. But none of the kings were really stepping away from the sins of Jeroboam. He had created two calf idols in Bethel and Dan at the northern and southern parts of the nation, and no king was ever willing to let go of those things, even though in the time of Elisha, the prophets gain a little bit more of a comfortable notoriety among the nation. Um, but I just want you to imagine again, just like what it would be like to live in Israel. You know, you know that these are God's people. You know that Judah, in the time of Jehoshaphat, is experiencing everything you wish would happen in Israel. Uh, a renaissance of faith, of good teaching of God's will and God's law, the priestly services are being renewed. The temple is being sought for. So Judah, which is, as you can see, not too far from Israel, no matter really where you're dwelling in that nation, they, they could have always chosen to leave, but people like Elisha, to serve God's purpose in a dark place, chose instead to stay and to serve God there. Um, with Second Kings 4, I want you to think about this. If you remember in Second Kings 3, the king of Israel took the king of Edom and Judah to fight against the Moabites. God miraculously gave them victory. He gave them water when they were weary and allowed them to conquer the Moabites while they took that way too far. Um, just kind of put into your mind, when you are extraordinarily frustrated, angry, hurt, and disappointed, does that put you in the mood to serve does that like motivate you to want to do like little things for the person or the people who are directly responsible for hurting you? One of the amazing things about the place of this is not only does this teach something about the condition of the heart Elisha had, because in chapter 4 this is all meager, quiet acts of service coming directly after this incredibly disappointing event in chapter 3, it also shows something about God's character that God was relentlessly seeking to serve and nothing could stop him from focusing on serving in whatever way he possibly could so long as he was bringing, uh, bringing himself into the nation through the prophets. A um, couple more things just to, to put into your mind. 
One, this chapter is a reflection of the beginning of Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings 17. Uh, There was a widow of Zarephath, and God multiplied her oil and her bread so that she could survive this great famine that God was bringing on the nations around Israel and on Israel itself. And then at the same time, God, uh, through Elisha, raised her son from the dead as well. We're going to see all of those principles in chapter 4. So in a sense, Elisha is reliving and continuing very direct things from Elijah's ministry. Another thing to get into, again, just kind of before we touch the text, um, another thing that can be easy to forget when you get to this point, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. This is just maybe homework to invest yourself more into these events. God promised that he would bless and curse the nation depending on their end of how they keep the covenant. He promised he would bless their land, their offspring, he would bless their food, he would bless their peace and their borders. All of these ways God promised that, consistent with the physical nature of the covenant, God would physically bless them if they were obedient. He would curse them if they were disobedient. What's amazing about 2 Kings, Elisha is a walking embodiment of those curses and those blessings. And while the nation is so clearly and explicitly disobedient, God is demonstrating his grace, not relying upon their works, but he is going above and beyond the principles of the covenant he made with those blessings and blessing them consistent with his covenant, even when he has every reason to withdraw. Everything we see in 2 Kings 4, God was in no way obligated to do any single one of these things. So 2 Kings chapter 4, the principle of the chapter will be seeing how God restores and multiplies, and we're going to start with the forgiving of the debt. 2 Kings chapter 4. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her sons, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons can live on the rest. Did you notice the condition of this woman's husband I don't, I don't mean like, I mean, he was dead. I don't mean that. Um, what was their financial condition? You know, the king of Israel in chapter 3, like, you know, fought this enormous battle to try to preserve, like, economic strength in the nation. I think this gives some insights into the kind of people the prophets were at this time. This person was serving God as a prophet, and he had nothing. Think about the kind of faith this woman would have had to have to support her husband in living this way, right? Not only were they dirt poor and had nothing, they were so deeply in debt that the creditor to find some salvaging payment was going to take both of her children to get something out of the debt that she owed, right? So just think about the faith, the humility, and what this teaches about God's character in connecting with the lowly. Think about this as well. Why wouldn't she cry out to the king, right? I mean, usually when you look at the times of David, when somebody had like a problem, 
that's a job for the king to judge or maybe somebody appointed by the king. Something to keep in mind when we're going through the kings, ultimately what God was demonstrating here, as in all the other places that we see, God was ruling not through the kings of Israel, God was ruling through the prophets of Israel. So instead of appealing to the king who had no power and really probably wouldn't even care, she appeals to the king of kings by going to the servant that he had marked and set apart who did care. So Elisha is among the people and he's close enough to the lowly where he hears this woman's cry. And just think about this too. If she did not believe the method and the word that he spoke of how he was going to resolve her issue, would that promise have seemed to have had any power? Would God seem to have had any power if she would have heard what he said and thought, that doesn't make sense, you know, like that, that's never been done before, you know? So like if she would have gotten lost in questioning or doubting the promise, it would have seemed to have no power. All of these things I think are signs for the nation at large. God had a method of blessing the nation. He had a way of connecting with them. But so long as they were disobedient and did not believe God's promise or God's method, it made God look powerless. Was he? Was he powerless? So he tells her to go in and shut the door behind her. And I think another interesting thing about this is Elisha's promise still carried power and could still be fulfilled even when the prophet himself was not present, even when the circumstances separated them, even when time separated them, and even when the door was shut behind her and they were in the privacy of her room. The promise was still valid so long as it was followed and it was obeyed, right? It's a lot like Jesus in his ministry that even by a word, he could heal, he could do things by the authority of his word. Um, another interesting thing about this, this promise and how this worked out, it was dependent on her zeal as well. If she would have not been very excited about this or recognized the help that she was receiving, maybe she gets just like a few vessels and just kind of casually does it. Maybe she's very excited about it and she like goes way outside of even her neighbors to get as many vessels as possible and she could become like incredibly wealthy, right? So what she would get out of the promise was dependent on her zeal and on her belief and also understanding both how God could miraculously work but her need as well. And you see in verse 7, God provided beyond what was necessary to care for the woman as well. It also shows that God was not just glory-seeking. Remember, Jesus would oftentimes tell people to say nothing about what had happened. Can you imagine how desperate God is to be known in this nation? Think about what God had just done, done. like this big national, like thousands of people experienced this miracle of giving these people water when they were weary in the wilderness going to Moab. But this miracle is so quiet so private. Who knows if anybody outside of the people who experienced it in these circumstances would have known about it. Because serving itself was God's reward. Uh, 8 through 37. We're going to start going uh, 8 through 17, though, and separate this in, in half. And there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem. By the way, let me um, backtrack. Shunem is this northern arrow. Um, it's in the northern part of the nation. He'll be in Gilgal after these events, just so you kind of have an awareness of the traveling Elisha is doing as he's walking among the people here. Um, so he's in Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please, let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there, and a table and a chair and a lampstand, 
And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. He said to him, say now to her, behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? So she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, uh, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Uh, Then he said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Is God eager to give? And does God have the power to give beyond our ability? You know, one thing that is a consequence of Israel's condition, it can make God look like he's incapable or just not very eager to give anything. For the rest of the time that we're going to be going through these accounts, there's just going to be one famine after another. It's almost like there's just a constant famine, even though I think the inference is that it's multiple famines that are having to be sent again and again and again. But is God incapable of giving life? And I think you see here how eager God is to give beyond anything being done for him. And also just when anybody gives even the slightest association to the prophet, how much God is willing to do for that person who gives Elisha even just the time of day. Remember in chapter 3, the king of Israel, all he did was give Elisha just a little bit of attention to ask what God's word was. He didn't deserve it. He was not righteous in the request, and yet God was willing to act and give even in the disobedience of the king of Israel's mission. Um, But you look at the character of this prominent woman, right? Think about how observant, how careful, how giving she was. You know, it doesn't seem like she heard of miracles Elisha had been performing and, you know, was motivated by glory seeking again. Notice in verse 9, she said, I perceive this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. So she had to persuade him to come in and eat food. And you just imagine, like, conversation they're having at the table. You imagine the the righteousness of his language and just Elisha's uh, interests of conversation, how this would kind of give an ongoing impression. You know, this is somebody who cares about God and wants to serve him. And you look at how much she wanted to connect with him. Folks, this should be our attitude for Jesus. Whatever it takes to be closer to Jesus, when we perceive what kind of man he is, whatever it takes to get closer to him, whatever it takes to get closer to his people, whatever it takes to love the people that God has redeemed and who are serving him, making the sacrifices to ensure that there can be the kind of intimacy that God wants between them, right? Um, We'll talk about more uh, of that at the end of the lesson. But you look at verse 13 how ready Elisha was to use all of his influences, all of the things that he had accumulated, at least as far as reputation, in the eyes of the king and the armies. Think about chapter 3, the kind of impact that would have had. But in verse 13, she refuses the initial request. And again, it draws out the humility of her character. And at the end of the section we read, the promise is to give her a son. Just take note before we continue reading, what God initially gave by promise what God initially gave by promise, he will restore. Verse 18. When the child had grown, the day came that he went to his father, to the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. 
When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It will be well. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask a son from my Lord? Did I say, did I not say, do not deceive me? Just stop there for a moment. Do you notice how relentlessly focused she was on Elisha, right? Not Gehazi and not anybody else along the way focused on Elisha. You see that even back in verse uh, 21. She lays the boy specifically on the bed of the man of God. I think even though there's great distress, obviously, especially verse 28, I think there are seeds of faith that you see in this woman in that principle that I just mentioned that what God gives by promise, he will not fail to restore it. It doesn't undermine the distress. And think about how this may be even a national lesson for Israel. Israel, in a sense, being like a child to God. And you think about the kind of condition the nation was in. You know, it can be easy, again, because of just disobedience and the nature of how dis- disobedience among God's people misrepresents God's nature and emotion. Do you think God had as much urgent concern for his people? Do you think God had as much urgent concern to restore those who were dead? And do you think God was working towards the one, relentlessly, who he knew could bring life where there was death? So with that, let's keep reading in verse 29. Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any, any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself on him. And the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once, back and forth, and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times, and the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came into him, he said, Take up your son. And when she went in, and, and then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. So just really quick, some initial things that, that happened here. Um, for one, the woman in verse 30 again, not putting any hope in anything except God's power in the man of God himself. You can see that there was something very perceptive about that because of what happened with Gehazi. We'll see in chapter 5 with Naaman, Gehazi had a, a heart that was not consistent with Elisha's. We'll see that in chapter 5, but I don't think that's the point here. I think the point at this, at this time with Gehazi going to the boy, putting his staff on his head, 
there's an essential reminder, I think, in the nature of Elisha and God's power. Did Elisha's words or promises, even if they were good words, even if there was potential for God to work in it, if it wasn't truly God's will, did Elisha of himself have any power at all? Like, did Elisha himself have any power to just create of himself a will that would be fulfilled no matter what? And I think there's a reminder here that Elisha ultimately was just a man serving God, and that's it. Just a man. And if he chose to do something that was not God's will, it wasn't going to do anything. And I think one of the things that helps to understand what God's will was in this, Elijah in 1 Kings 17, again, with how things here are like a reflection, a parallel to what Elijah did with the widow of Zarephath, if you remember, Elijah, to raise her son from the dead, also stretched himself on the boy in the exact same way. I think there may be a point that God's will is that these patterns repeat themselves to continue to bring glory to his method, right? And that's like Jesus, I think, in the New Testament, how often Jesus brings attention to the fact that he wasn't ultimately really doing anything new. He was simply fulfilling the patterns, the examples, and the commands of things that they could read about in their Old Testament and follow right along and see how Jesus was completely fulfilling word for word everything that had been written beforehand. There's power in imitation with God. And God's will was that this boy be raised in the same method as how Elijah had raised the boy in 1 Kings 17. So there's power in imitation with God. Um, Another thing about this that I think is important for the nation at large You think about when Elisha was finished here. So when Gehazi said the lad has not awakened, Elisha, or Elisha rather, didn't give up and say, like, well, we tried. You know, I had an idea. The idea didn't work. So I really don't know what we could do. And then when he lays upon the child initially and prays to the Lord, there's there's like a sign of life. But that sign of life really wasn't the end, and it wasn't a full restoration yet. So he walks back and forth in the house, and I'm I'm assuming by inference that he's praying to God, and then he comes back and lays on the child again, and there's a clear sign of life. And remember back in uh, earlier in the chapter in verse uh, 18 through 20, um, the lad specifically said, my head, my head. And it could be that there was evidence that in the even initial place where the problem was, there was clear sign of life. Think about that with the nation. Is God satisfied with, like, partial restoration? Are we even satisfied with partial restoration, right? Like, so I went to West Virginia recently and stayed with some brethren there, and uh, the uh, brother I was staying with, he, like, runs his own eye exam clinic. So he told me he would give me, like, a free eye exam, which I hadn't had an eye exam in, like, four years. So, you know, you're doing the thing, like, number one, number two, number three, number four. He's asking, like, which one's clearer, right? Because, like, just helping my vision get a little bit better is really not the goal. And especially if he's aware that, like, the goal is 2020 vision, you know, that's what you're really working for. And it's almost like you're getting, um, uh, uh, the word is slipping my mind, but you're getting taken advantage of if somebody's not, like, telling you that, you know, your vision could actually be better pretty easily if you would just, like, look at these next few slides um, to improve your vision. The idea is, like, we of ourselves in things that we realize and experience 
are never satisfied with partial restoration. And think about that with the nation again. There were signs of life in the nation, like the prophets were dwelling in the nation, you know, and then like the kings would sometimes give a little bit of attention to Elisha. But was that really the nation being restored? And you think about even like Hezekiah, even the uh, reformations of Josiah, uh, David even in his reign, was that, were any of those times truly full, complete restoration? And it's really not until we get to Jesus that we really understand what real restoration looks like from God's perspective. The problem is we constantly face the temptation of stopping short, of getting satisfied far too early, and not understanding the need to go further. For this child, Elisha understood the urgency of taking the principle of raising him all the way and not stopping short. Um, We'll stop there um, and look at the next and final accounts. So these are very unusual, these next ones. Note in verse 38 that there's a famine in the land, and these are all like food-related miracles here. And these are miracles you might not even have known were in the Bible. They're just, they're so short, they're so easy to read over, but there are powerful lessons in these things. So verse 38. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds, came and sliced them into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat, and as they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. But he said, Now bring meal. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Stop there. So when uh, the Shunammite woman's son, who had been given in the first place because of a promise, when he died, did that somehow like nullify God's ability to fulfill that child's life, like raise his life? Um, you know, the woman at the beginning of the chapter and the debt that she'd owed, she was a wife of this prophet, and did her condition nullify God's ability to forgive that debt? I think the same thing here. This man goes out and, in complete innocence, is trying to obey something that Elisha has told him to do, and he ends up actually poisoning the stew. And when he says there's death in the pot, I'm assuming it was like poisonous to the degree that they would die if they ate of it, right? Did his faulty obedience, his attempt that was broken, somehow invalidate God's will for the matter? No, it didn't. Even the broken effort in the attempt to obey, God could heal it, God could use it. We're going to make an important application for that at the end of the lesson. You see, like, Elisha was willing to use just something common on hand. I think there's a principle we're going to see constantly through Elisha's life that things are used that of themselves do not have power, but God has a habit of using common things to bring him glory of using things that people have on hand that of themselves, without him, would have no power at all to do these things. Like, if you put meal into a poisonous stew, like, you should not have the expectation that something's going to happen to make it edible, right? So that's not the point. The point is that God is able to use something meaningless and common for incredible purposes that far exceed anything it could be used for on its own right. So, the next account. Now a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. 
His attendant said, what? Will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Like that should immediately bring to your mind Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? Again, just kind of like this really quiet little miracle that's easy to forget this is even in the Bible at all. Again, God's power is working in patterns, fulfilling patterns, imitating things done before, and God's power is working in patterns. So again, Elisha says, feed the people. Does the little bit that they had invalidate God's command? Does not having enough to obey invalidate his power, right? So the the nation was going to continuously be in a famine condition. Is that because God could not supply what they needed? The king of Israel, the king of Israel, I don't mean God king, I mean Jehoram king, could he feed and provide for his citizens? I think the famines proved that he could not. He was actually powerless. Could God feed and provide for his citizens? Absolutely. And God's power to do that was not invalidated even by the king and his powerlessness. Um, So not only did they have what they needed, but they had more than they needed. I think this helps to understand very clearly. God was not going to just do these things all the time. These were like Jesus' miracles, I think, as signs. But these things were done to show things about God that he was very purposely choosing not to do things for the nation at large, despite his complete willingness and capacity to do those things at any point he wanted to. But he was choosing not to so that he could teach his nation principles of repentance to draw them to him. Just the balance of how God is ruling is amazing. Like doing things nationally, but also working very privately in the midst of a broken national condition, bringing intimate healing. It's much like Jesus' ministry and how Jesus would both have bigger conversations, he would go to Jerusalem, he would talk to the Pharisees, but ultimately the power was in Jesus' intimacy connecting with individuals and hearing the cries of the people who were being neglected in the nation at large. So let's get into some principles and applications briefly. Elisha did not go into the nation to be served, but to serve. Why was nation in, why was Elisha in the nation of Israel? You know, and you have to imagine again, like how overwhelming the needs of the nation could have been. Imagine how easily Elisha could have thought, like, I'm the only one with miraculous power, and this nation is in famines. The kings are just messing everything up more and more. There's not enough prophets in the nation. And you imagine how overwhelmed he could have been by the amount of needs that were all around him. But Elisha just wanted to contribute. That's it. There are so many commands of Romans chapter 12 that are fulfilled in this. Practicing hospitality, weeping with those who weep, not being haughty in mind but associating with the lowly, Remember that we got into this study in the first place because one of my goals was to demonstrate how you can find the commands in Romans 12 hidden within these Old Testament accounts, right? So Elisha did not come to be served, but to serve. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, You may know exactly where I'm going right away with verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Ultimately, God is seeking to empower us to be servants, 
And God's power and the, the joy and the promises that he seeks to give are within not trying to accumulate things for myself, but rather experiencing joy by taking the attention away from myself and investing more into the needs of others. So Mark 10:45. this is a principle we see in Elijah's life. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for men. Do you really believe that it's more blessed to give than receive? Do you really believe that? Um, how you treat the brethren here is the clearest evidence of whether or not you believe that. Remember, Elijah wasn't just making great claims. He wasn't even preaching long sermons or giving great dissertations. He just did stuff. It is evident that Elisha truly believed it was better to serve. You see it in the way that he lived his life. And he did it towards the people, the very people, who were the most emotionally draining and burdensome to do it towards. Because ultimately, yes, God did these miracles, but God's power was working through the condition of Elisha's heart. One more thing on that. In verse 46, it's very ironic. Jesus, like Elisha, ends up in this next event after saying this, encountering a, a blind man named Bartimaeus. And he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So he recognizes, like they recognized with Elisha, Jesus was somebody special that God was ruling through and would rule through. And then he cries out in verse 48 again for mercy. And in uh, verse 50 and 51, he comes to Jesus. And just like Elisha said to the woman who was totally broken and impoverished, he said, what do you want me to do for you in verse 51? In the last part of this in verse 52, he follows him after he regains his sight. I think Elisha understood how God was serving, and he witnessed it through Elijah. Here's the thing. It's not just that we have to realize like we have to serve or we're called to serve. If we are not served first by God, we will not be motivated then to serve. We must perceive how we are first served and understand how God serves to be motivated to serve, right? Um, not only did the nation need an Elisha, the nation needed an impoverished widow to be forgiven of her debt. The nation needed a Shunammite woman who was barren and had a child who then died and could be raised. The nation needed this man who, in inadequacy, tried to feed the people but ended up poisoning it. And the nation needed this man who brought bread to Elisha so it could be expanded. Elisha was serving, and there needed to be people who understood their need to be served. When we understand our need first, how God meets that need, we will then be motivated to serve as well. Another thing is, God's power and grace are not limited by our inadequacy. All of these accounts are inadequate people who are helpless and powerless. Chapter 3, remember, that's when the kings gave the prophet their attention. They were going to die because they got into some foolish situation where thousands of people were without water and without food. And God helped them at that time of their inadequacy. You had a widow who had an incredible debt. And who knows if they got into that debt because of foolish decisions. They just they had the debt. The Shunammite woman had no power, first of all, to even have a child, much less raise him from the dead. And then once the stew was poisoned, they had no power to heal it, if not for Elisha's willingness, right? Our inadequacy does not limit God's power and grace. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. Was Jesus adequate when he was on the cross? Did Jesus have power when he was on the cross? I mean, he was the son of God, so you could think, yes, of course he had power when he was on the cross. But the cross is when Jesus was both most active in his role, but also most inactive and most incapable. I mean, his hands and his feet were like nailed to a couple of blocks of wood. Jesus could not move. He could hardly speak. And yet it's in that condition of inadequacy and him embracing and going into that condition purposely that God's power worked in the most evident and world-changing way that it ever had before. And later the Corinthians, in verse 26 to the end of the chapter, talks about how God has chosen the weak and abased things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise and mighty. And the problem is the Corinthians, at the point of this writing, were moving away from embracing that condition. Because it's, it's not just about embracing that condition to seek salvation in the very first place. It's growing into comprehending that condition more and more as we see God's power working through our inadequacy. And similarly, our understanding of the obedience of faith really needs to change. Romans is bookended with this concept of the obedience of faith. Chapter 1 talks about that God has done all that he has done to bring about the obedience of the faith, and that's repeated in chapter 16. And I just want to ask, like, what do you think about that? What is the obedience of faith? Um, I think the way that I've usually most often thought about that is the obedience of faith is just that. It is obedience. Like, if I have faith, then I will obey. But can I suggest to you that's really not the full picture of what uniquely the obedience of faith really is? It is that. But is God able to heal the broken efforts of our obedience? Here's the thing. What I've discovered, maybe your experience is different, but when I try to obey God, especially in loving other people, sometimes I will actually hurt people through my efforts without actually intending to do it. Uh, Sometimes I will attempt to follow something God has said, but even my attempt will feel so inadequate of itself that it just seems actually completely useless and it's easy to get demotivated. Think about the man who put the poisonous gourds in the stew. Is God able to heal the brokenness of our efforts? Would it have been better for that man to not obey than to obey and fail trying? No, God would clean up the mess, right? Elijah was willing to heal the brokenness of the efforts. I'll just tell you right now that there are situations here and things among the brethren and needs that like, you know, are here that I just feel so inadequate to even begin to address. And then even when I try and seeing how it's like the more I know the need, the more intimidating it can be, I'll tell you it really tempts me oftentimes to feel very crippled and withdrawn. And it tempts me to like make nearly no effort at all because I feel overwhelmed by either the enormity of the need or my incapability to actually solve whatever the need really is. And especially when needs and their reality simply take so much patience to really meet, right? If we understand the obedience of faith, we understand how we can have courage in the power of God. How God's nearness to heal and help the littleness of our efforts gives us comfort and assurance 
how we can trust that God will powerfully use to complete his will whatever we're able to offer, whatever we're able to do. In Romans, that's not a 16-chapter letter just to tell us, like, okay, so God has done everything he's done. God is this great God who's redeemed you. Now just obey him on the basis of working out your salvation kind of at a distance and all by yourself and good luck, right? No, there are 11 chapters dedicated to how powerfully God's grace has worked out a plan that we've inherited so that he can continue to serve and minister his power through our yielding ourselves to his purpose, right? If we really understand the obedience of faith, nothing will stop us or hinder us from trusting that God will bless us in whatever way we're able to fulfill his commands and we'll be able to watch as even we fail how he heals and blesses those efforts. So that's where we'll stop this um, count for today. Um, Just as an invitation, getting back to this idea of there being power in pattern and imitation, I think there are parallels in 2 Kings 4 to the principles that work in baptism. You know, the reason why baptism has any power at all is through the faith of understanding that I'm embracing and imitating the burial of Christ and being allowed then to imitate his resurrection into newness of life. And that serves as a seal that as we imitate Jesus' death, that God will work in the power of what raised Jesus from the dead from that day forward. Imitate Jesus. Know him. Allow him to bury you with him, and you will be saved. But there is no power in the ideas of men or the methods of men. Even if they're religious men, even if they have good ideas that sound godly, like Elisha told Gehazi to take his staff, sounds good. But if it's not God's expressed will, it doesn't have any power. Let God redeem you his method, his way. If there's anything that can be done for you at this time, come and bring it forward while we stand and sing invitation song.